Let's change up the way you watch baseball. Introducing Changeup, a brand new live whip around show across the league, brought to you by MLB and DAZN. Jump in and out of the best plays as they happen and get expert analysis from hosts who bring a fresh personality and a new perspective to the game. It's on every night and available on nearly any device, smart TVs, tablet, mobile, and gaming consoles. Getting set up with DAZN is easy. Just download the DAZN app in the Apple or Android app store, sign up by creating an account, and start watching across any of your devices. That's DAZN, D-A-Z-N. Brilliant Earth is the global leader in ethically sourced fine jewelry. Create your own custom engagement ring and pick from a variety of ethically sourced diamonds, gemstones, metal types, and settings. Brilliant Earth also offers wedding rings, vintage pieces, and many other handcrafted jewelry items with exclusive unique designs you can't find anywhere else. To enjoy free shipping and returns on any of Brilliant Earth's fine jewelry selections, just visit brilliantearth.com slash ringermlb. That's brilliantearth.com slash ringermlb. Hello and welcome to the Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman and I'm a staff writer at the Ringer. Ringer MLB Show is part of the Ringer Podcast Network, which is itself part of the Ringer.com, where we cover more than just baseball. We've got the NFL Draft is this Thursday, Avengers Endgame is this weekend, the Battle of Winterfell on Game of Thrones is Sunday, and we've got preview content for all three, plus NBA playoff coverage so detailed it even extends to the Orlando Magic. So please go check that out after you have listened to this show which leads off with Zach Cram. You might recognize my first guest from the Game of Thrones pre-Capables, which uh, is dominating the the Ringer airwaves right now, but he was kind enough to take off his uh, wolf-shaped helm and put on a baseball cap for a couple minutes to talk about uh, a couple of the best players in the National League. So welcome back to the show, Zach Cram. Hello. So you wrote last week about Cody Bellinger, who is a, a player I've long found quite interesting and had a hard time uh, for some someone with such a simple skill set. I've had a hard time pinning him down. And he's well, he's he's playing like the best player in the National League. And that was sort of the the premise of your your article. So I want to talk about him and Christian Yelich, uh, two players who came together over the weekend. So Cody Bellinger, you, you know, what is different about him this season versus last year? Yeah, so I think the first thing to recognize is that Bellinger hasn't just been the best National League player so far this season. He's been the best overall. I wouldn't yeah, I wouldn't expect that to continue, but it's funny given the players we're talking about today. If you look at baseball reference, fan graphs, and baseball prospectus, all three of the public were versions right now. Bellinger is number one, and then Trout and Yelich are either two or three, depending on the model. And it's obviously still early, and I certainly wouldn't take Bellinger ahead of trout at this point or maybe ever but i think this is more at least for him than just small sample it's april i think he has actually made meaningful improvements and as i wrote about they manifest in three different ways at the plate number one is he's swinging at fewer breaking balls and specifically fewer breaking balls outside the strike zone which has sort of been his bugaboo especially in the playoffs where he hasn't had that much success in either of the past two seasons and I think the image of Cody Bellinger from the playoffs has been flailing at a breaking ball low and away. And he's been laying off that pitch so far this year. Number two is that against any kinds of pitches, he's whiffing less. He's striking out less than he's walking. He's cut both his strikeout rate and his swing and miss rate about in half. 
And that's come against fastballs, that's come against changeups, that's come against sliders and curveballs. So he's making more and better contact. And number three is he's hitting the ball more both in the air and to the pull side, which, as you know, is where you generate and access the most power. Bellinger, in his previous two seasons, hit about 18 or 19 percent of his of all of his batted balls in the air to the pull side. This year, that number is around 40 percent. It probably won't continue to be that high, but doubling that rate is a reason why he's hit so many home runs this year, you know, and not only has he hit so many home runs, but he just has been hitting for extra bases across the board. The only player with more home runs than him this year is Christian Yelich. Yeah, let's just run down the stats because that makes for good audio. Uh, As we record on uh, Tuesday afternoon, Bellinger is hitting 424, 500, 882, leading Major League Baseball in runs, hits, batting average, slugging percentage. He has, like you said, 11 home runs, trailing only Christian Yelich, uh, who also leads Major League Baseball in RBI, and he's hitting 337, 439, 820. Uh, Yelich... it feels like you don't actually need to watch that many Brewers games because every highlight show or every game break that you'll see on a national broadcast is, oh, Christian Yelich homered again, and they show it to you. So you watch more Brewers that way than uh, than if you actually turn on the, the TV and sat down and watch the game. Um, that doesn't make any sense at all. But, you know, I'm... There's a point in there. Uh, Yelich uh, was red hot down the stretch last year. Uh, I wrote about him last year and sort of the uh, in the face of the swing plane revolution, you would expect him to be hitting more fly balls, uh, whereas last year he wasn't really. He was just hitting the absolute bejesus out of the ball on a line, and that resulted in him hit having career highs in in home runs, uh, leading, you know, winning a batting title, winning the MVP award. And he's been even better. Uh, this year, and Ben wrote about him uh, earlier in the season, and he actually, I believe, is elevating the ball a little bit more this year. And the thing with Yelich that, I mean, I said over the offseason, and I wasn't the only one, is that last year, his home run per fly ball ratio is, was 35%, which means more than a third of the fly balls he hit went for home runs, and that was a historically high rate that's up with the likes of like Aaron Judge and prime Ryan Howard. So we all expected that to regress. Well, so far this season, his home run per fly ball rate is 41%. So he's hitting even more. And I think there's some weirdness with Yelich's season thus far. If you look at his home road splits, like right now, uh, he has played 14 games at home and he has an OPS of 1.811, which is just unfathomable at home. And on the road, he has played 10 games and has an OPS of 588. All 13 of his home runs have come at home. I don't think. Yelich is a 1.811 OPS true talent. I also don't think he's a 588 OPS true talent. And obviously those two numbers will converge as the season goes on and the samples grow. But I think there's still a little bit of weirdness and Yelich is incredible. But as hard as he hits the ball, I still can't look at these numbers and totally trust that he's as good as he's looked, even though like the last month that he had an OPS below 1000 was June 2018. Yeah, and it's. Uh, you you look at this is small sample, uh, you know, and all that, but his he's his hard contact rate is higher this year than it was last year. Um, and it's you know, one thing that I found interesting about him last year is everybody gets taught to to hit the ball in the air because that's more it's more productive in quotes. But what it means is it, it leads to a much higher uh, slugging percentage than uh, hitting the ball on the ground. But hitting the ball on the ground has 
or ground balls generate a higher Babbitt than fly balls. And I guess like the ideal is something like what you see out of Yelich or Aaron Judge, which is you hit the ball in the air, but you hit it incredibly hard uh, based on two seemingly divergent approaches, which has made him a really interesting, like there's almost something like the, what we saw out of uh, maybe Jacob deGrom or Aaron Nola in the past couple of years where Yelich was, a really good bat to ball guy. And he, he had, you know, he um, made a lot of contact, made a lot of hard contact as he's gotten into his mid to late twenties. He's just added the physical strength to, you know, turn to essentially turn those doubles into home runs. And the, the pitcher parallel is if you have the, the command and the consistent repeatable delivery, and then added a tick of stuff. And Yelich had the baseline of a good batting eye, really good bat-to-ball skills. And as he got into his mid to late 20s, he's added the strength and he started hitting the ball much, much harder than he ever has before. Um, so the result of that is is the stereotypical, like this is, it, it is weird on one level, but on, on another level it's not because, you know, the guy ages into some power. We see this all the time. It doubles turn into home runs. So this in spite of, him traditionally having a, a high ground ball rate, uh, which he's hitting the ball in the air a lot more uh, this year, like I said. Um, but you mentioned that there is some weirdness with his home road splits. And the but the things you mentioned with with Bellinger were all they're all like swing rate, contact rate. Those stats stabilize very, very quickly compared to something like batting average. So, you know, I don't know if the. Yelich's number, Yelich's underlying numbers this year are so divergent from his historical norms that I'm, I hesitate to make any, you know, sweeping judgments just based on that. Uh, but as opposed to Bellinger, maybe he has made a breakthrough. Um, Yelich, what Yelich is doing is, is so unusual that I, I'm, I'm still sort of waiting and seeing about, uh, maybe not the, the leap he took last year, but the leap he took from last year to this year. Yeah, and if you look at someone like Bellinger, down the stretch last year, he was being platooned. He was sitting against lefties as the Dodgers fought for the division title. And even though LA didn't really pursue any more notable free agents than AJ Pollock this year, despite trading Yasiel Puig, Bellinger has really stepped into the superstar role in that lineup, uh, surrounded by guys like Corey Seager and Jack Peterson and Justin Turner. And the Dodgers have looked like the National League's best team so far. What Yelich has been doing in Milwaukee has been of paramount importance because the Brewers play in a really tough division, and despite having a winning record, they've actually been outscored. Their record is buoyed by a 5-1 and record in one-run games. They're actually the only team in the National League Central at this point that has been outscored. Even the Reds, who are several games back, have played like a better team if you look at the underlying numbers. And Milwaukee's lineup, a lot of the players who performed well for them last year when they made the NLCS have been struggling. Travis Shaw, Ryan Braun, Jesus Aguilar, Orlando Arcia hasn't taken a step forward. So I think this lineup would be really struggling if not for the MVP candidate in the center of the lineup. So while the Dodgers have almost been elevated to the next level because of Bellinger's play thus far, the Brewers have basically only survived because of how Yelich has played. So I I alluded to this before, but one reason that Bellinger uh, has always been a little bit of... uh, he's been a player I've had a hard time pinning down is that projecting him forward. I've always sort of considered him as first base only, and he's played enough outfield that I think, and showed himself to 
to maintain like a level of athleticism where he was fine in center field last year, where he could play there if the Dodgers hadn't signed Pollock, that you really have to take that label off him. Uh, I mean, you probably should have taken that label off or one should have taken that label off him uh, a while ago at this point. And so he's not just a Ryan Howard or a prime Chris Davis, you know, somebody where where he's nailed to first base. He can actually play a couple different positions and uh, and. You know, he, the power is good enough to sustain him if nothing else works, but other things are working for him now. Yeah, the very thing that inspired us to talk about this duo on the podcast today was over the weekend when, in consecutive innings, Bellinger robbed Yelich of a home run and then hit the game-winning home run off Josh Hader in the ninth. So that's, I, I'm not sure if there's a more impressive back-to-back feat that can be accomplished on a baseball field than that. I think Bellinger also, just because of that, fits into the Dodgers mold so well, because even now with you know a, a more regimented system, the Dodgers still have a lot of flexibility with players like Enrique Hernandez, Bellinger, who's been playing a lot of first base, and Max Muncy, who's been playing all over the infield. So they have so many players that they can mix and match, even as they're not platooning quite as much as they have in the past, that I think... He's not only a great player, but he's a great player specifically in L.A.'s system. And you mentioned that he was getting platooned a lot. And uh, I think I was talking to Jonathan Sharks about this. The idea of, you know, how in the NBA there are players who work in the regular season, but not in the playoffs. Right. Um, And there are there are players. The idea of of, uh, expanding that concept to baseball, I think the way you see it most is with pitchers where there are some pitchers who whose value is in innings. But like when it comes to high leverage time, you just you just can't trust them with uh, when you're facing a team like the Red Sox or the Astros or or even the Dodgers who can who can really punish you top to bottom. Um, And Bellinger, because of his his contact issues, might was in some danger of becoming that kind of player. You know, he wasn't the only players the the Dodgers used in every situation in the playoffs last year were Justin Turner and Manny Machado uh, without moving them around at all. Whereas Bellinger was a guy who you know, came in uh, against right-handed pitching when they needed certain things out of their center fielder defensively. Um, but maybe that role changes to, and we won't know until crunch time, obviously, but to something more like Chris Taylor, where he could have played three or four different positions hidden a couple different places in the lineup, just based on what other parts he, it wasn't that he came in to do a job. It's that he could be moved around to allow those specialized players to come in. I don't know how much faith I put in that generally, like Aaron judge looked like he was going to be impossible in the playoffs in that first series. And now a season later, his career playoff OPS is nine ninety four. So I'm not sure how much that matters. I know that's very like Sabermetrics 1.0 of me. Yeah, but that's not I think- a that's not like a, he can't hack it in the playoffs. This is just this type of player isn't as useful when the intensity get, gets ratcheted up. Right. Just and because I of, think not because of like clutch or not, but because there's there are deficiencies in the skill set. Right. And I think that's where more broadly there was a question of whether Bellinger's struggles in the playoffs would carry over to the regular season once teams realized what the model was to get him out. Even last year, he slumped a bit compared to his rookie season. He went from 39 home runs to 25, which is still a good year. He was a better than average hitter. He was a three or four win player, but that's not quite the superstar trajectory that he looked to be on as a rookie. And now he's sort of recovered, whether it was just a sophomore slump 
or what, I think this is just another example of a theme we've talked about on the show before, that development isn't exactly linear. Christian Yelich is another perfect example of that, where he had been kind of constant for a while and then just took a massive step forward. And it's kind of unclear what happened at the All-Star break last season to turn him from a good player to like almost the equivalent of Mookie Betts. But this kind of thing happens, and I'm not sure how predictable it is, but it it does, and that makes it, I think, harder to analyze player performance, especially this early in the season. Like, are these new trends real and how sustainable are they? I think it's, you know, you mentioned uh, Sabermetrics 1.0. I think it's it's illustrative of the flaws in sort of large-end statistical thinking that the stuff you identified changes in in Bellinger's approach or what we saw from Matt Carpenter last year or, or uh, um, Daniel Murphy. I guess this would have been all the way back in 2015. You have to be able to look at either tape or underlying numbers. It's not, let me back up a, a, a little bit. So uh, this being the the first couple weeks of the hockey playoffs, I've been listening to a lot of hockey coverage. And one thing, one thing that that's really interested me about listening to or uh, listening or, or reading or or consuming uh, stat based hockey coverage is how perfectly the evolution of of statistical public statistical analysis in hockey has mirrored the development of statistical analysis in baseball. Uh, so. You listen to statty writers or you read statty writers uh, say this player is is playing over his head. It's not sustainable just by quoting the numbers. And that's the sort of thing we used to do eight years ago, you know, and it's just jarring to to see uh, a, a level of analysis that hasn't really take, taken that that step forward where, yeah, you, you look at the numbers and the the immediate reaction isn't to dismiss, but to try to find an explanation. And so something that, that like what we, what we saw with, with Yelich last year, or what you identified with Cody Bellinger early this season, it's, we're not like dismissing these, these big leaps out of hand. We're looking for a reason to, to believe or disbelieve them, you know? Yeah. And that's where, if I was wrong on Bellinger, it's because I just looked at that home run per fly ball number and instinctively thought, well, that can't last, but I think over the large sample of players, sure, it won't last, but there are extremes in baseball, and maybe Christian Yelich just hits the ball so hard when he hits it in the air that he is an extreme in that sense, Mm -hmm. and I would have erred there, and I would happily admit that that's the reason why. You're right. It's kind of this instinctual judgment that maybe it is important to look deeper and try to identify, well, what might allow this player to buck the trend, and maybe you'd be wrong there, too, trying to find you know a confirmation bias example where it doesn't exist but it is something to pay attention to especially in this era of player development and the and this is sort of the last thing i have on that is yelich is an example of a player where you look at the the change in approach or mechanics and he's still he certainly like we said still seems to be evolving uh i think we we all expected him not to be as good as he was last year but that uh that assertion, I think, too often gets mistaken for we think last year was a fluke, that maybe that was the any player's MVP season is probably going to be the best season of his career. So Except when Mike we're talking Trout. about regression, you know, the growth, he, there's, you know, there is he got super hot last year. He's not going to be this hot again, but he's also not the same player he was in 2017. So that 
search for for nuance, I think, is something that we're still struggling with. And I think we we may have zoomed all the way out, wait, maybe too far out uh, in terms of this discussion. But it's just these are the things I think about. And to bring it full circle back to the beginning as we wrap up, I think in the case of both Bellinger and Yelich, one thing they've proved even in this small sample is that the way pitchers make adjustments to these hitter hot streaks, at least in their cases, has been to pitch around them a little more. And at least thus far, they haven't pressed. You know, that was a problem that Bryce Harper would run into occasionally when teams would just pitch around him and he'd start chasing more pitches or selling out for a little more power. And that would cause his overall offensive profile to stumble. Both Bellinger and Yelich have been even more selective and understanding they should only take the pitches. uh, They should only swing at the pitches that are actually drivable. And I think that's helped them both walk a lot and hit for more power, which is of course the best combination in three true outcomes baseball. That patience, the willingness to take a walk is is really a differentiating skill and something that players from Joey Votto to Barry Bonds to Ted Williams, you know, they get criticized for because if you're that level of athlete, you want to be great. You want to hit the home run. You don't want to just take your base because you don't see anything worth swinging at. But that that patience is I mean, that's something that Harper learned and something that that these guys seem to have baked in. So it's very exciting. Uh, One thing that you said in your article is how there are like five players in the American League, five position players in the American League who are better than anybody in the National League. And then it's sort of a muddled class of 14 or 15. So I'm I'm interested to see if if these guys uh, end up poking their head above above the rest of the pack because there, I, I don't know that there is a consensus best player in the National League right now. And at least for now, these two are battling for that throne. Oh, there you go. Man, you're so I had good to at throw this. in a everybody, Game of Thrones reference at the end. Everybody, listen to next episode comes out on Friday, right? The precapables. Mm-hmm. All right, so uh, everybody, keep your your ears peeled for Zach and and Riley McAtee on next week's episode of Game of Thrones precapables, and uh, look out for more baseball content on theringer.com. And uh, failing that, we'll talk to you again on Tuesday. Until then, let's get something straight. Your teeth. Smile Direct Club straightens your teeth for 60% less in braces with invisible aligners sent directly to you. Simply go online and book a free 3D scan at one of their smile shops or order an at-home impression kit. Then they'll email you a preview of your new smile and once you get your aligners, one of Smile Direct Club's duly licensed doctors will check in on your progress every 90 days. Visit SmileDirectClub.com for real before and after photos from some of the 550,000 plus satisfied grinners. And exclusive to our listeners, you can get 100 off your invisible aligners when you go to smilederectclub.com slash podcast and use offer code MLB100. You'll also get a $25 Amazon gift card with a free 3D scan at one of their smile shops or a $25 rebate on an at-home impression kit. That's $100 off at smilederectclub.com slash podcast. Offer code MLB100. smilederectclub.com slash podcast. Offer code MLB100. All right, so my next guest is, uh, I'm proud to have him make his Ringer MLB show debut. It's Ringer Tyler. staff writer Tyler Tynes. Tyler. Look, y'all know what it is. I'm too perfect. I'm too pretty. I'm just living great out here. How you doing, man? I'm doing okay. I uh, wish we weren't talking about uh, what we're going to talk about because you write about the intersection of race and sports for the Ringer and race has intersected with sports in a very, I'm going to say frustrating way this week. 
Tim Anderson, who's a shortstop for the Chicago White Sox, who was on fire early this season, uh, hit a home run off Royals pitcher Brad Keller, flipped his bat, and there was a confrontation. Keller hit uh, Anderson with the pitch next time up, and Tim Anderson responded by calling him a weak-ass fucking N-word. Yeah, for which Major League Baseball like says Tim Anderson uh, was suspended by Major League Baseball for one game for using uh, what was first rec- re- uh, reported as racially charged language. What's, I guess, most confusing or annoying is that, you know, Rob Manfred is, is trying to uh, police Tim Anderson's usage of uh, a word that he really doesn't have, that he, Rob Manfred, doesn't really have any uh, place to to police. Right. Uh, you know, you know, poli- policing black thought and specifically censoring uh what black athletes are able to do, especially now in a time period where we are looking at them more than we maybe have um, in the early aughts and, and, and other times in history compared to the civil rights movement. Um, it is very intriguing that Major League Baseball has decided to continue to be one of the worst sports leagues that it could possibly can be, right? The NFL catches so much different flack for um, being itself and unquestionably being itself. And yet the NFL is not really doing this that frequently, right? Like guys aren't getting suspended for saying things that they're allowed to say. And so it's very interesting that Major League Baseball has found itself um, at this moment where it's basically saying, oh, you doing this black thing and having fun in our white league is already too much. But then you actually saying these things is crossing the line too. So much so that we are going to penalize you equally to the white person who attacked you with a deadly weapon because that makes so much sense. And it's not, I would even say they're not being penalized equally because uh, Keller got suspended five games. He's not missing a start. You know, Tim Anderson is actually missing a game that he, or he has missed a game that, uh, that, he could have played in as opposed to the guy who threw at him. It's, it's just, it, it's so, uh, it, it's such a corrupt notion to believe that black people defending themselves is, is of equal ground to white people doing almost nothing at all, right? Like what, what my guy did was pimp mm-hmm. a homer. It was real lit to pimp that homer. And maybe you should know about that, right? Like when I dunk, when you dunk a basketball, you don't, you don't do it quietly, right? Like if I dunk on you, you need to know that I dunked on you and you ain't shit because I dunked on you. Right, like that—that that is how this is supposed to work. If you give up a home run, which is so much harder to do, like to hit a home run is so much harder than dunk a basketball. I might tattoo your response on my arm. I'm going to throw my bat at you and all of your friends that are in the stadium. I don't care if I don't get a hit for the rest of my life. You gonna know I hit one off you. The idea of of bat flips and the the unwritten rules of the game. I think that this is something where public opinion has been. I mean, this issue's been litigated to death. Uh, over the past few years, and but I think we're at a point where we're that's becoming sort of the mainstream as you know young people of color are becoming the the face of baseball um, and being like a little less repressed, you know, for lack of a better word. That's become more acceptable, and I think that's a good thing. But it, it's culminated in this uh, this ad campaign, the "Let the Kids Play" ads that you've seen all over the place. Uh, for through the preseason early this season, you know, promoting like expressiveness and and be you know and and celebrating when you hit a home run or strike somebody out, and then to come back, it almost seems like they couldn't they couldn't suspend Tim Anderson for flipping his bat 
Right. Because that's what got other people mad, you know? So they found something else. The problem with baseball isn't so much that it's still like the whitest sport that we could possibly have and how we promote their stars. It's not the mm-hmm. problem that so many different white people believe this is a part of America's pastime and the trueness of what America was, especially at the beginning of the 20th century. None of that is a problem with baseball. The problem with baseball is that they have not figured out what to do when people come to baseball to stunt. Right. Like Tim Anderson didn't come to baseball just to like chill and just be an OK player. When Tim Anderson hit that home run and threw that bat, he came here to stunt. He came here to let y'all know y'all ain't shit and ain't shit y'all could do about it because he's Tim Anderson. The problem is that baseball has not found a way to package somebody stunting and being generally better than somebody else at this moment. When someone pimps a homer in baseball, baseball should treat it like basketball does in so much that we are celebrating any formation of the reaction that comes with such a feat. Because it's not easy to dunk unless you are a certain height. And it's not easy to hit a home run unless you are of certain, I don't know, launch velocity and a variety of other factors, right? And so we should care not only that people are coming to the sport, not only are there more marketable stars in Major League Baseball that do not look like white people, but also get the fuck out the way when they're doing shit that has nothing to do with you. This brings to mind something Adam Jones said a couple years ago that you sort of echoed echoed, um, uh, when you were talking to Gonzo on Heatcheck last week that... Baseball is a white man's game, and even the NBA has trouble being a league. There's there there's friction when it's a league run by white people, populated in large part by non-white people. The the thing here too is that, and it works inversely. I I, I would guess say to how you know I spoke with with Gonzo on, on the Heat Check podcast. The problem with the NBA is that there are so there's so much blackness that was never really afforded to the NBA, and that the white people within the NBA decided they actually cared about once Allen Iverson got there and a little bit more after the mouse of the palace. Like like you know for the NBA, it's not this is very much new that they're caring to posit themselves as a black league for its own black players. That is the most outspoken anything in major sports. It's also a lie, but that's what they posit now because it's marketable. The difference with baseball, similar to hockey, similar to crew and lacrosse, is that when blackness intersects traditionally white institutions and systems, and it's still not as as black as we'd like it to be or as brown as we'd like it to be, it is up to the white people and the white power brokers in those systems to ensure that the black people and brown people there are still otherized in so much that it is important that those different people of color are made to feel as though they are not welcome here. And that is kind of where baseball has been able to, you know, exist in the periphery of all of these other sports, right? Hockey is conservative in so much that they'll let you know early on you're not supposed to be there and then let you know about it if you make it to major hockey. In Major League Baseball, Major League Baseball still wants to posit as if they want black and brown stars to come into their league. However, they're not know what to do once those black and brown stars get into their league, decide they are expressive in, 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 any, in any, you know, amount of anything, and then want to be themselves at all times. Are not going to censor themselves in the same way we ask our athletes to. Angel League Baseball doesn't know what to do with that. This is one other thing I wanted to touch on before uh, before I let you go. Like this came the week during the week that Major League Baseball says it's celebrating Jackie Robinson, but really celebrates itself for uh, for essentially having solved American racism, or at least that's what's what you'd <laughs> right. be led to believe based on the the advertising campaigns. You know, is is that just sort of another ironic check mark on this story or you know what do you make of, of all this happening in the same week is that you know more out of touch you know you know uh, you know Jules Jules Tyjo you know wrote this about the, the Jackie Robinson and, and baseball's great experiment is is, is um 
his autobiography, he said the integration of baseball represented both a symbol of imminent racial challenge and a direct agent of social change, and that Jackie Robinson's campaign against the color line of 4647 captured the imagination of millions of Americans who had previously ignored the nation's racial dilemma. The problem with that understanding is that it's the same understanding as baseball right now. It's the assumption that because baseball did a thing, that baseball should be heralded forever for the thing that they did. When the reality was, if you ask anyone who happens to be black at that time, the black actual athlete who was involved in that time, all of these different parties will tell you that nothing is spectacular about integrating a thing that should have been done earlier. And if, you know, Major League Baseball is still a place where only 9% of opening rosters are black, Jackie Robinson's dream has never been achieved, actually, right? There aren't that many black managers, and when they are, they don't get that long of a time in Major League Baseball. And so... Nothing about what baseball does, the otherization of, of black stars, the, you know, the Im- impediment to black thought and the censorship of black ideologies should be allowed to continue in baseball if baseball genuinely does want to diversify itself from top down. The problem with baseball is that, that has always been a lie. Baseball does not wish to integrate itself, you know, in all things. It just wants a few black stars a few every few years. So I can suggest that it's not as white as we believe it to be. And that's just also a lie because it will always be as white as we believe it to be as long as those same white people run the upper doldrums of the sport. All right. Well, uh, thanks for uh, for joining me, Tyler. Uh, we will. I hope we we have more fun stuff to talk about. We'll bring you on to talk about the Phillies at some point. If they get uh, fucking better. Season, but thanks for. If they get better, Bowman, yeah, we'll I talk know. about them. And Bobby, All I don't right. want to hear shit from you either. <laughs> So as is traditional, my final guest is Ben Lindbergh, and I'm bringing him on today because he is the only man in New York who is not on the Yankees injured list. So uh, <laughs> knock on wood, Ben. How you feeling? I'm feeling all right. Yeah, we're continuing our tradition of ending these episodes on a down note, I guess, except that what's a down note for Yankees fans is probably an up note for everyone else in the world, really. So misfortune for the Yankees probably brings a smile to a lot of our listeners' faces. I actually don't feel well. First of all, the segment before this is about racism, so this is <laughs> true. <laughs> this is a uh, positively optimistic by by comparison. Uh, the weird thing is, maybe maybe I'm completely off base with this because I don't really have an emotional investment in the Yankees. I find what they're going through to be sort of fascinating, considering yeah. how deep this team ended up being and how well they've weathered it. All things considered. That's true. And you're the one who has cautioned people in the past about falling for the Yankees and letting their guards down and thinking that they're sympathetic or underdogs. And then suddenly you realize that they're still the evil empire. So that could very well happen here if they weather yeah, this. This terrible is not run emotional attachment. This this is like <laughs> scientific curiosity. Yeah, it's not Just the to, new Cinderella team of Major League Baseball, but it is pretty impressive and it, kind of like this strange experiment that they're running right now because the Yankees' recent lineups have been rivaling like late-period Orioles in terms of anonymity. It's just like, who are these guys? You you almost have to look up the first names when you look at the box score, which you're not used to doing with the Yankees because the whole lineup on opening day was stars, pretty much. And now it goes maybe too deep on stars, if that. And then suddenly it's Mike Talkman and Gio Urshela and Mike Ford and Kyle Higashioka and Austin Romine and Tyler Wade. And we're just bringing out these guys that 
that no one thought would be playing a meaningful role for the Yankees this year or any role for that period. So mm-hmm. you wrote about this. I, I looked up some data on this. The Yankees right now have about 33 wins above replacement combined in 2018 numbers on the injured list right now. And that does include some guys like Jacoby Ellsbury, who's just a, a permanent resident at this point. But well, he wouldn't be it, on that because he generated zero war last year. So Exactly. Right. Yeah. So we're talking about Aaron Judge, of course, is the latest to join that. And Stanton and the list goes on and on. Severino, Montgomery. I mean, it's kind of impressive that they are doing as well as they are because they are a winning team. They are only two and a half back of the Rays, who are off to a great start in the AL East, and they're half a game back in the wild card standings. And if you look at the underlying numbers, they're like fifth in the majors in run differential, I think third in the American League. So they're actually playing pretty well, despite being incredibly shorthanded. So I believe that this is the most combined previous season war that any team has had on the injured list at any one time since at least 2002. And replacement level, it's kind of this abstract concept, but generally replacement level for a team is set at about 48 wins. So if the Yankees have like 32, 33 wins on the injured list on top of that, you're basically saying that the guys that are on the IL for them right now, if you just surrounded those guys with replacement players, you'd basically have a 500 team. So that is what the Yankees are missing right now, and they are playing through it. After looking at your data, uh, I sort of spun it and said, well, we've seen teams. You, I looked at the other teams on the list and said, well, some of these teams make, made the playoffs and others were just really historically notable disasters. So I looked at at uh, teams that fell into both buckets and looked at what could happen if it goes wrong and use the 2014 Rangers and last year's Angels as examples uh, of ha- of talented teams with high expectations where everything sort of unraveled. And then the 2017 uh, Nationals and a couple of recent Dodgers teams as examples of teams that were able to weather not this extent, but something close to it. And yeah. The where the the Yankees are different is one you talked about replacement level replacement levels higher for them than it is for most other teams because yeah you know, I no intending no undue disrespect to the Yankees fan who was very angry that I didn't give DJ LeMahieu uh, credit for his silver slugger in Colorado like the man's not Manny Machado but they're not rolling out total scrubs are rolling out competent big league backups. And this just shows in contrast to a team like Cleveland, the usefulness of building up depth. So that's one way I think in which they've managed to come out of this on the other side. Uh, Well, I guess they're not out of this yet, but so (laughs) far they're, they're most of the way to the other side and they, they haven't fallen out of the race entirely is their replacement players are not literal replacement players. Yeah, I think that's true. And that's kind of been the Dodgers MO over the past several seasons. They've had a ton Mm -hmm. of injuries, but they've also had enough depth that their second and third string guys are as good as other teams first or second string guys. And so they have survived. And I think that's true of the Yankees, as you pointed out, as Dan Simborski wrote for Fangraphs also on Tuesday. I think everyone, even in their greatly diminished lineups, he says projects to be replacement level or above, in most cases above. And that's what really can kill a team when you lose someone and you're forced to just play this abyss in the lineup or you're just giving away Mm -hmm. two or three lineup spots that are just actively killing you day after day. And the Yankees don't really have that. And 
I don't want to say that they planned for this because why in the world would you <laughs> plan for something like this to happen? But mm-hmm. they did build in redundancies and, you know, entering the season, it seemed like they even had too many players at certain positions. And we were wondering, well, how are they going to fit all these guys in? Now we know just half the team will be on the injured list. Yeah. But, you know, where, like where will Troy Tulowitzki play? Well, he won't. He's sure. going to get hurt, too. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So Gregorius gets hurt and yeah, you bring into a Witzke, but you figure you're going to need a backup to the backup there. And so they have LeMahieu who didn't really fit. And it, it seemed like, you know, he's been one of the best second baseman fielding second baseman, certainly in baseball. And suddenly he was converted into a utility player and you wondered where he was going to get plate appearances. And now he's having no trouble getting plate appearances. And also they have acquired guys like Talkman, who they traded for in March. They had Clint Frazier, who was sort of blocked and and just, you know, waiting behind other guys, probably would have been starting for other teams and, and just didn't have and a who's spot. picked up an injury of his own between yes. when I wrote the article and when it got published. So he's <laughs> not on the aisle yet, but he's picked up, I believe it's a hamstring strain. Of course. And and they continued to pick up depth pieces like Brad Miller now and Logan Morrison and Cliff Pennington. I mean, these are not players you get excited about, obviously, but they're better maybe than just bringing up some guy from AA or AAA who doesn't project to be any good. So that has helped them weather this. So I think if you're a Yankees fan, you can... I guess, take the the silver linings out of this is that A, the team is in pretty good shape and has played surprisingly well, has maybe had some good timing on offense and defense, like looking at their clutch stats on offense and uh, also pitching wise, it seems that they've done better with runners in scoring position, for instance. So maybe they've just had good luck there to offset some of the bad luck they've had with injuries. So that's one thing. The other thing is the depth, as we mentioned, And, you know, then I guess the other thing you could point out is that none of these guys on the injured list, at least right now, are out for the season. Like, none of these individually seems to be a death blow. Like, Severino, I guess, is the most concerning loss individually because he's the best pitcher who's heard and his timeline is kind of uncertain and and worrisome. But other than that, like, it sounds like you're going to get Gary Sanchez back this week and then guys seemingly will start drifting back after that. A lot of guys with May returns and and June returns. So that's the upside, I guess. It's not any one crushing individual blow. And so they can perhaps recover from this better than they could otherwise. So the other thing I was going to say is the the players they've lost, and I this is one way in which they're different from that Rangers team, different from that Angels team, and I think it helps them, is that they've been absolute. they've lost essentially their entire starting lineup, but the yeah. only real losses they've had off their pitching staff are Dellen Batances and Severino, and Severino is their best player, and or their, sorry, their best pitcher, and it's he is their ace, and losing your ace is not something that you can just shrug off, but they have a bunch of depth, and I think it's, they've went out at, uh, this offseason and picked up James Paxson. They brought back Jay Happ. They uh, went out and got Adam Adovito and Zach Britton to fill out the bullpen, which already had Tommy Canley and Araldis Chapman and Jonathan Holder. And they the Yank- The one thing we know about the Yankees is they have a deep bullpen. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and they picked up Gio Gonzalez as additional depth, but then they, they released him because uh, they turned out not really to need him. But but that's kind of the, the stockpiling approach that we were talking about. Just get redundancies, just build in guys who can sort of save you. Right. Well, I was going to say it, that might speak to it being easier to find replacement level or 
you know, good backup position players than pitchers. Cause I don't know if they'd be, I don't know if the bleeding would be this easy to contain if instead of losing, uh, you know, let's say judge and Stanton and Sanchez, they had lost not only Severino, but Tanaka and Paxton. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you'd think it seems easier to find bullpen arms, let's say, these days, because it just seems like there are so many guys who throw one devastating pitch and you can just bring up some really hard thrower and have him throw one or two pitches and get by with that for a while. But if they had lost a lot of starters, uh, I think that would have been a big yeah. problem. Your your boy, James Paxton, he's <laughs> the, the oasis of health here Rock on solid, this man. team. <laughs> just as you projected. So, yeah, yep. I mean, that His has, time will uh, come. That, probably, hopefully for the Yankees' sake, it will come after other guys' times are over. But, yeah, I mean, the other thing is that this has coincided with the Red Sox getting off to a really lousy start. So that helps, too. If If they were off to a great start, then it might be tougher for the Yankees to overcome this. But as it is, they have outplayed the Red Sox despite losing half their team. So... Some things are conspiring against the Yankees and other teams are kind of propping them up. And maybe some of that is good fortune, but definitely some of it is just good planning and building in contingencies for this kind of crisis. Yeah, and I do want to make that distinction between, yeah, it's easy to find bullpen arms. I don't know if that's 100% true. Like these guys seem to come out of nowhere for the Yankees and the A's and the Astros, but how long have the Nationals been trying to find you know, two competent relievers to go with Sean Doolittle since before they had Sean Doolittle. So I think sometimes maybe we overstate the ease with which you can build a killer bullpen. And also if you start losing guys out of the rotation, like it's not by any stretch of the imagination that easy to come up with even competent, like somebody who can throw, who can allow four runs over six innings. Yeah. Those guys just don't walk in off the street anymore. So, you know, if maybe even more specific than the pitching staff, if they had sustained heavy losses to the starting rotation, this wouldn't be nearly as easy. They wouldn't be able to weather it even as well as they have. Yeah, I think that's true. Although they did have the the best and deepest bullpen in baseball. So I suppose in that sense, they were better positioned than most teams to lose starters. They're already yeah. a, a team that is kind of bullpen centric and maybe doesn't leave its starters in too long into starts. So they they had depth there too. And, and partly that's player development and just finding this bottomless well of hard throwers that keep calling up but also it's that they've spent a lot of money on their bullpen on guys like Chapman mm-hmm. and, and more recently Britain and Ottavino they have paid a premium for these guys and, and that doesn't always work either I mean we've certainly seen other teams that have just like you know put a, a lot of money into their bullpens and then guys who had track records just self-destructed like we've seen the Rockies for instance have have tried to build a bullpen via free agency with guys who had been reliable in the past and that sort of fell apart for them. So they have done a good job of of building that lights out bullpen at least. And and they had, of course, a, a pretty overpowering lineup when everyone is healthy. And so in that sense, they are better able to weather losing stars like Judge and and like Stanton just because, you know, you still have Luke Voigt around at least. You still have one big beefy bat who's left and, and they have 
you know, found guys like Talkman and Ford who are not like really promising top prospects or anything, but they have a track record of hitting. Like Talkman has been a triple A masher the last couple of years, kind of like Voigt was before the Yankees acquired him. And, you know, all these yeah. guys kind of project to be average or better hitters, even if they're not great players. So it's, it's you know, there are lineups that are healthy and are playing guys who are worse at hitting than, than these guys are. Do you remember Mike Hessman? Yeah, I do. The, the all-time minor league home run leader, right? Are you having the same problem I am where where you're calling Mike Talkman Mike Hessman in your head? <laughs> I, just- I, I have, I'm not, but I have thought of Hessman as I have been looking up Talkman. I'm trying to keep all these mics straight and the Yankees have like all their first basemen have uh, four letter first and last names for some reason. So it's kind of hard to keep them all straight. And no names on the back of the jerseys. Wow, this is like. <laughs> I hadn't I hadn't thought about this, but like it it really sucks that the team that has so many guys just coming off the street is the one team that that never puts names on the back of their jersey. Yeah, like they should true. have name tags on the front of their warm up shirts, just so know. everybody knows who's who in the. Just make an exception for right now. Just <laughs> stick some like stenciled names on the back, just so we can keep track. Yeah. All right. Well. Keep your head down. It's dangerous out there in New York. Uh, (laughs) I I hope you are not also on the IL when we come to talk next week. I hope so, too. I will stay safe out there. That'll just about do it for this week's edition of the Ringer MLB show. Thanks to Zach and Ben and Tyler Tynes for joining me today. You can find Tyler on Twitter at Tyler Ricky Tynes. Uh, Thanks to Bobby Wagner for producing today's episode. Thanks to Cody Bellinger, Christian Yelich, and Rob Manford for giving us stuff to talk about. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the week's action, and we'll see you next time. Brilliant Earth is the global leader in ethically sourced fine jewelry. Create your own custom engagement ring and pick from a variety of ethically sourced diamonds, gemstones, metal types, and settings. Brilliant Earth also offers wedding rings, vintage pieces, and many other handcrafted jewelry items with exclusive, unique designs you can't find anywhere else. To enjoy free shipping and returns on any of Brilliant Earth's fine jewelry selections, just visit BrilliantEarth.com slash RingerMLB. That's BrilliantEarth.com slash RingerMLB. Support for today's show comes from Smile Direct Club. Smile Direct Club straightens your teeth for 60% less than braces with invisible aligners sent directly to you. And exclusive for our listeners, you can get $100 off your invisible aligners when you go to smiledirectclub.com slash podcast and use offer code MLB100. You'll also get a $25 Amazon gift card with a free 3D scan at one of their smile shops or a $25 rebate on an at-home impression kit. That's smiledirectclub.com slash podcast offer code MLB100.